Hey, and welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. I'm recording from a different spot today. Normally, I'm in my home office, so if you hear a preschool next door and kids screaming, they are not in danger. They are playing joyfully outside. Uh, today on the pod, I'm happy to have Chris Wiley. C.R. Wiley is how you might know him online. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, Chase, I'm glad to be with you. Now, Chris, you're up in Washington State, is that right? That's where I am right now. Yep, I've got two homes, one here in Washington, where I'm most of the time, and then i got another home in Connecticut. Okay, and uh, was that a recent, you took a pastoral gig up in Washington, or what brought you out that way? Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I serve a church uh, that meets in Vancouver. Our offices are in Battleground, and we're just on the uh, Washington side of the Columbia River, uh, right across the river is Portland, Oregon. Okay, that's great. Uh, I've never been out there. I'm going out there uh, next, actually next week, uh, and now that part of the way. But I've only been to Seattle, which I think is a little bit different than the rest of the uh, the state. So that sounds great that you're yeah. there. Yeah. Um, you said something in a uh, in a tweet or Facebook one time about places you're attracted to, and you're one of the few people I've heard articulate it this way because I've sensed this too. I went to college at Texas A&M. And that's in College Station, which back then was a bit smaller than it is now. And yet I always wanted to go to Austin because Austin was cool and had arts and all this kind of stuff. And uh, you were someone who articulated that in a really thoughtful way as a pastor, a minister, being attracted to more liberal context. Uh, and yet you yourself not being that way. What, what either inspired that reflection or, or how do you make sense of that for yourself? Well, I, I guess it has a lot to do with my personal background and um, the home I was born into. I, uh, my father was an academic. My mother was into the arts. Our home was full of um, reproductions uh, by great masters. I remember being freaked out as a kid by Michelangelo's Moses. I don't know if you recall. It's got mm -hmm. goat horns. <laughs> yeah. Why, why he put goat horns on him, I don't know. <laughs> but if you're an artist, you do stuff like that. And uh, anyway, I, uh, so I, so I, we were like in, you know, the penumbra kind of, of, of college, college, uh, colleges where my father worked. So I was at the University of Buffalo, which kind of, uh, which was a real center of atheism, hmm. you know, philosophical, you know, sort of atheism. And then, uh, then Washington University in St. Louis. So, uh, and then I come from a family of artists and academics. My wife does too. And so I guess maybe uh, the comfort level is just really high with that kind of, uh, in, you know, sort of uh, scene. But uh, it's, it's also been where I've, I've served. I was, in, uh, I was in Boston for a decade, actually lived and worked in Cambridge right between Harvard and MIT. Then I was down on Cape Cod. Um, you know, when DeSantis sent all those uh, immigrants to, to Martha's Vineyard, I was just like delighted <laughs> <laughs> because I, I know those people. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and then um, uh, then I was in Connecticut, uh, lived right, right near Yukon uh, in stores for um, almost 20 years. Now, now I'm here in the greater Portland area. I'm actually in a little uh, red dot in a sea of blue, you could say. Battleground is a very uh, conservative place, probably the most Christian town I've ever lived in. Hmm. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Uh, but I, I just have a, I guess, you know how like when you get into the water and it's cold and then you get a, you kind of get acclimated and you, and you're just like, yeah, I can, I can do this. 
Well, that's been my life um, for most of it. I've been in these environments, except for my teenage years where I was in Western Pennsylvania, which is a really important part of my life, very mm. formative. Um, and now, but all the other time it's been in places like Portland. So when people ask me, you know, does it kind of get in your nerves or does it kind of creep you out being in, in like Portlandia? I said, no. <laughs> in fact, you know, the, the difference between West Coast and East Coast liberalism is pretty fun. It's uh, the, the East Coast is very self-assured. The West Coast is insecure and feels like it has to prove something. It's just <laughs> kind of creepy, stupid stuff they do to say, yeah, man, we're, we're, we're liberal. <laughs> That's funny. I've never thought of it that way. What do you think are some things that have helped you either like as a pastor or Christian, what's helped you? I mean, you, you talked about your family of origin and kind of always being comfortable in that. Um, you know, it would seem based on what I've seen you post and share and ideas I've heard from you, being more of a conservative person yourself, you're in the middle of a bunch of people who think differently than you. Do you find it easy to make friends? Do you find it easy to have conversations that way? What are some skills that you've employed to uh, kind of, either be evangelistic or build relationships in those contexts? Well, I mean, when you kind of grow up in a scene like that, I mean, you just kind of are comfortable because it's just what you've always known. Sure. Um, and then you, you know all of the stupidity and the blind spots of the people that, that you're talking to because – you know, they were your family. Sure. <laughs> and so, you know, so you're, you're, you're unimpressed um, and you're, and you're relaxed. So I, I think that what happens sometimes is people who come from other places, they might give more credit than really is de deserved um, mm. to people in those environments because they're kind of awestruck by, you know, names of places or uh, institutions or whatever. But, uh, you know, there's always going to be people who don't like you, no matter what. I mean, there are conservative people who don't like me. So the fact that sure. some liberal people don't like me doesn't, <laughs> doesn't surprise me. And then um, there are going to be people who do, who do like you, who, who get along with you and just kind of recognize, oh, yeah, we, we, we see things differently on this or that. So I'm a social conservative, uh, mainly because I've had enough liberalism to be inoculated. I'm completely uh, inoculated. There's just no way. <laughs> so if, if anyone comes to me and says, hey, uh, here's an idea, that, you know, I think refutes something you think. I say, well, you know what? I've heard that a lot put a lot better by someone who's a lot smarter than you. And it didn't affect me then either. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway. That's great. I, I love that. Yeah, I think <laughs> the ability to be like comfortable and just not be impressed uh, that sounds, it sounds, uh, the not being impressed thing sounds like it, it could come across as rude. And it's not meant to be that. It's more just like, man, like they're just people, like there's nothing to, nothing well, to that, be scared that's of. That's right. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, when you put on airs, when you're trying to look more confident than you are, than you are or whatever, that can kind of come off as arrogant. But if you just mm. genuinely relaxed and, you know, when I meant by unimpressed was not, not that I was kind of defiantly unimpressed. I just, right. Yeah, just the, I, I've been there, done that, seen it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think over the last 20, 30 years, there's been a, this huge ride, rise in church planning and evangelicalism. Uh, the Southern Baptist, Acts 29, other networks. Church planning is a is an important way that God can expand his footprint in the world and, and uh, different expressions of the kingdom all throughout the world. Um, but something that's kind of been a predominant feature of the last 30 years of 
conversation is this idea of being missional and particularly this idea of contextualization. And the way I've been kind of taught is that you want to disenculturate from the sending culture and reenculturate the gospel into the new culture. And so you, you contextualize the gospel uh, to that new culture so that you're not importing uh, kind of your cultural preferences into that new culture. Do you think, is that a fair summary of, of how you might understand uh, how a lot of people think about contextualization? Yeah, I think that's the way a lot of folks think about it, and I do think that's the way it's generally presented. Uh, there are some weaknesses in that, though, and uh, some blind spots, and I'm happy to talk about those. But, yeah, I, I've thought a lot about that, and, um, you know, we can dive into it, but that's generally the way it's put. Yeah, and I think it kind of piggybacks on the previous conversation simply because for a lot of pastors, when they enter into, let's say they grew up in a Southern Baptist church and they're sent out, into this crazy liberal context that the NAM has a map and here's where we want to plant churches because there's not any good churches there and all this kind of stuff. And they enter this context and they feel they've got to put on airs or pretend to be somebody that they're not or, you know, presume about culture in a way that they can just kind of be this uh, all-seeing eye where they can deduct from one end of the equation and add to the other. Um, And the first time I really started rethinking this was, uh, was an interview you gave with the Missions Podcast, and I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. And then my friends uh, Brian Laughlin and Doug Ponder also wrote an article on it. But I had been so thoroughly for the last 11 years on this contextualization, contextualization. And so when I moved to Boulder, I was like, well, I got to drive a Prius. I got to wear a scarf. I got to start drinking tea. Like I got to do all the things. And I'm from Texas, and I drive a truck, and that's just not who I am. And so after two years of kind of a lot of self-hatred, I kind of just owned the reality of like, you know, like no one's going to like you if you're not just kind of being who you are and being who your tradition has formed you into. And so, uh, so yeah, I think that was the first time I had, I had heard kind of a critique of contextualization and me personally kind of rethinking it. What are some kind of big problems you see with the model of contextual contextualization as an approach to ministry? Well, it, uh, fails to uh, give proper, I think, space and attention to the nature of creation okay. and what creation says and, and what, it, and what uh, comes with that. So what we have with um, essentially the contextualist outlook is a kind of sweet cream. In other words, they, they talk about culture as though it's like uh, a base uh, like gin or like sweet cream to which you add flavors. So mm. what you do is you, you know, kind of, you know, extract your Texas flavor sure. <laughs> and you put in the Boulder, Colorado flavor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and everything is just fine. It's just this thing called culture. And then there's that. Well, culture is cultivation and uh, culture. It has to do with also worship cult. So there's uh, something even beneath that, which is creation. So some cultures are really messed up in a Mm. big way, Mm. and they're uh, not oriented to creation in a way that's healthful. Uh, Of course, all uh, non-Christian cultures uh, will have uh, overt uh, ideology that characterize them. Uh, but we have, as you, as we all admit, uh, our own idols, even in cultures that have been 
you know, very, I think, thoroughly uh, saturated with the gospel. So, you know, idols, you know, are, are things that we have to deal with all the time. But some cultures are self-consciously anti-Christian. Right. So when you're dealing with a self-consciously anti-Christian culture, uh, you're, first of all, dealing with an anti-culture. It's not really cultivating anything but weeds and disease and mm. death. And that's what largely the West has become. So what happened was, is people like Donald McGavern and Peter Wagner and all these guys at Fuller Seminary, they were the ones who decided that they're going to take these ideas that have some currency in the world of missions and then apply them to the Western scene. And initially okay. it sounded just fine until you actually end up with stupid stuff, you know, like, uh, you know, the whole seeker sensitive crapola where, where, okay, we're going to make a worship service that resembles Johnny Carson or right. who was ever the on late night television. That dates me, Johnny Carson. I, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we're going to make our worship service about, you know, sort of making people feel comfortable. We want to have a living room environment. We want to have like soft lights and spotlights and, and, and all that stuff. Uh, and, uh, what it fails to take into consideration is that we actually have a popular culture that's really sick. And mm -hmm. if we, if we're in, we're, 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 what are we, what are we contextualizing to? We're contextualizing to death. We're contextualizing to sickness. We need to have a more self-confident critique of things. So, you know, here's a fun idea. I'm just making this up, but Let's I'm go. just pulling this out of here. But what yeah. if you, what if you were to go into your local tea shop and then just start smashing the place up like you said? This place is full of idols. <laughs> that would be contextualization. <laughs> sure, <yeah>. you'd be <laughs> you'd be saying you all think you're such you know such cool people because you drink you know the stuff from Madagascar. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> it doesn't make you any better. That, you're just a sinner. <laughs> right. Now, that would be a contextualized gospel 101. But no, no, that's not what these guys do. These guys sure. wear the scarf, drive the Prius. Now, I'm not against the Prius. Well, maybe I am. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's the same kind of stuff. You know, I, anyway, I'm, I'm starting to ramble. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you going. That's great. Um, yeah, I think the appeal of it for me is someone planting a church, trying to, you know, I, I originally sensed I was being called to missions. I wanted to go overseas, be a missionary. And so when you go, when you're a missionary in another country, you want to think about how to reach those people well with the gospel. You want to figure out where the gospel is going to find hard ground, uh, both culturally and theologically, but also you want to find opportunities. And so a lot of it appealed to me um, on that basis. And so I was like, well, if I just apply that here, what does that mean? And you've got guys like Leslie Newbegin, who uh, wrote Foolishness to the Greeks and other thinkers that have profited greatly from in terms of critiquing, analyzing, um, and hopefully giving people ways forward in a, almost a post-Christian context. Um, and so how do you, how do you reconcile? Like, should, do you think it would be um, just we should dispense of the, the idea of contextualization altogether, or what's a, what's a more fruitful way forward? Well, I, I like Leslie Newbegin. I, you know, I've read his stuff. I've read Foolishness to the Greeks. It's a great book. Um, he uh, is not, um, you know, Bill Hybels. <laughs> he, he's not even uh, Tim Keller. Um, these are guys who are marketers. Speaking of Tim Keller 
Tim Keller is really good at marketing to the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He's right. really figured out how to sell. Um, and the same thing, you know, with uh, Bill Hybels. I know he's kind of passe and been uh, kind of uh, forgotten about by a lot of folks. But he was he was a huge deal in the '90s and the early 2000s. Um, and he, you know, supposedly reached you know the s- suburbs of Chicago. And he had certainly had a big church. And I'm not saying that nothing good ever happened there. I'm I, I'm not trying to be that extreme in my sure. my critique, but um, often when you're dealing with say um, non-Western cultures, you're dealing with people who are interacting with creation in a very different way than people in the West do. Hmm. So you, you'll you'll have magic, but not the kind of magic that we have with technology. Uh, what what you see in the West is a mechanistic framework for understanding nature and a kind of instrumentalist approach to everything. Nothing means anything unless people want it to mean something. So in other words, meaning uh, comes from the subject. Not It's not actually objective in the sense that it exists outside, this, outside the subject's perceptions. Uh, and you don't have that in non-Western cultures. In non-Western cultures, you might have, you know, animism or, or polytheism or something like that. But you still have people who believe in that there's a, like a reality out there. It's not just all sure. in your head. Yeah. And in the West, that's not the case. Um, in the West, we're almost, we're uh, almost been entirely, uh, it's almost been entirely denatured uh, in our, from our, in our minds. So consequently, um, we, uh, live in a disenchanted universe kind of intellectually mm-hmm. that's not to say that the world is disenchanted it, it right. just means that we got a head problem and what we need to do uh i think right up front is challenge people um so like a, a favorite uh verse that people use to justify the this sort of approach that you were describing is you know all things to all men so that by all means i might save some Mm-hmm. But we're talking about, and uh, the person who said that was the real deal. In other words, the person who said that was genuinely a bike, you know, a two culture guy. He, right. he was a, he was a Hellenist. Uh, he read, you know, we know he read his, his, you know, he read Stoic, Stoic authors. He quotes them from memory. Um, he was from, uh, Tarsus, which was a center of Stoic philosophy in antiquity. Um, kind of like maybe, New Haven is to Cambridge, United States. You know, you know, Cambridge being Athens and, and Tarsus being New Haven, or maybe mm-hmm. Providence, Rhode Island. And maybe we would say New Haven for I don't know Alexandria or something, <laughs> <laughs> or Antioch. But but it was a, it was you know it was a significant center of culture, and he was a Roman citizen, and the Jews of Tarsus, if I remember correctly were given their citizenship by Caesar because hmm. of the, their support, or was it Mark Anthony? I can't remember which. But anyway, they, these were really well-connected Jews and uh, sophisticated Jews. And he had gone to the, you know, in the Jewish-speaking world, when you're a, you know, a student of Gamaliel and you go to, you know, and, you, and you're clerking in the Supreme Court, which is the Sanhedrin, you are super connected, man. <laughs> so he, he he's a Roman right. citizen, speaks Greek fluently, reads the, you know, the, 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 the Stoics in their own language, uh, 
and has got a lot of cachet in Jerusalem. You know, so he's a guy who can genuinely be all things. Not sure. He wasn't LARPing. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I think a lot of these guys do. They LARP. And, yeah. and, and, and what ends up happening, and I've seen it, is they convert. Uh, they go native. Mm. And uh, after, after enough role-playing, they actually adopt the religion of the natives and uh, renounce the Christian faith. I've seen it. Right. Not and in so every the, case, but in, in, in many cases. You're, you're thinking about church planters in the American context specifically who have kind of adopted the, the culture around them. Is that what you're thinking about? Yeah, to the point that they've renounced the faith. I can actually think of some people. Wow. Wow. It's a, it's an interesting, you know, with that verse particularly, I've, I've a, I think I made a, uh, I was referencing it in a sermon and I, I made an offhanded comment that I don't think anyone picked up on because it was intended to be funny. And I said, the trans movement is just, you know, becoming all <laughs> things to all people. <laughs> um, it's just That's the great. Deal. That's great. I don't, I would say if you, if you took your typical, okay, here's an interesting test. This would be a great litmus test. Okay. Okay. So you take your, your typical, uh, you know, hipster church planner type guy who is planning a church, I don't know, in Berkeley or Austin or Cambridge or whatever, fill in the blank. And you were to say, okay, what, what's the difference between you and a trans person being all things to all men? <laughs> That's right. See what they say. See if they can come up. Well, I, I tell you what they'd have to do is they'd have to turn to scripture and they'd right. have to turn to culture or not culture. I mean, creation. Hmm. Uh, they have to turn to creation. Uh, and that's the point. Uh, we have to uh, be in touch with creation. And um, this, you know, this, this shadow uh, puppetry that we engage in with culture. Uh, some cultures really stink. Let's just be right. honest about it. Some cultures right. need to go. And, you know, and, I, and I'm not talking about just cultures out there. I'm talking about American culture. We have some subcultures uh, that need to go. And uh, we have, uh, you know, some really things about American culture in general that need to go. Right. Yeah, this was one of the most contested conversations I got into in seminary was with a guy and I said, well, that's a bad culture. And he was like, how dare you <laughs> critique another culture? Oh, yeah, I'm like, like... <laughs> what? We can't do that. Is that? <laughs> do we believe in transcendent truth or not? Right. You know, that's what, that, that's what these people do when they, when they, whenever. So, the problem with the problem with kind of the it's the church growth movement, generally speaking, as it came out of uh, Fuller, and Fuller is nothing like it was in the seventies. I mean, mm. you could see the beginnings of the liberalism then, but now it's just come it's full flower. Sure. Um, but what what you had uh, w with that was a uh, a failure to, to think theologically first. It was entirely pragmatic in character. Mm. And there were some assumptions made. In, fa in fact, there was a lot of question begging that was going on. And now we're, we're reaping the whirlwind right now because of the stuff that, mm. you know, you know, let's just think about this. Um, lots of mega churches operate more on the corporate model than the biblical model. And no one calls them for it, calls them on it. Right. The whole way they operate, it's corporate America. Sure. Uh, the church should be in a position where we're saying, you know what? Corporate America is good for certain things. 
but it's not good for everything and it's really bad in certain ways. And we're not going to mimic that. We're not going to try to turn our pastor into a CEO or whatever. Right. Are you thinking more and of like uh, the marketing stuff in, in corporations or how would you kind of uh, like, what are two examples to help people kind of see the difference there? Well, for example, uh, one of the reasons why we have the, the approach to um, church life that we see in uh, mega church environments is, be, is because uh, they engage in kind of need assessment through, through segmentation. So what they do is they take they take the world apart. They isolate children from families. They isolate men from women. These kinds of things. Now that's not entirely bad. You know you can do that sometimes. But but everything about the way this is done is intended to uh, sort of facilitate the transfer of content, meaning kind of intellectual content, uh, and kind of deliver it to you know these different discrete groups rather than um, sort of see the church as a, as a whole body that's called to worship and, uh, and recognize that there's a thing that is natural, which is the family. Uh, another thing that's natural is, um, you know, communities. Um, when I talk about nature, even that, um, many, many of your listeners or some of your listeners will Think of, in terms of that word uh, in in a in a kind of a, a modern way, which uh, is um, nature in the in many minds is just simply what happens out there, and there's no meaning sort of necessarily to it. But mm. theologically understood, nature is something that uh, comes with uh, kinds, or forms, ends, purposes. And there are things that are natural that are not just simply spontaneous or just urges, but are natural because they're good uh, for man as such. But that's a whole different way of kind of thinking about nature and consequently uh, culture as well, uh, in which creation is the framework within which our thinking is occurring, and rather than just sort of thinking of sort of a world of sort of meaningless stuff kind of floating around and then we're trying to organize it in ways that help us to do what we want to do as a, uh, you know, sort of business corporation in the, you know, for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that, I, I, I'm kind of like, I'm just kind of thinking aloud here. No, no, that's great. I, I think it hits on kind of the demographic based ministry that you see a lot of uh, Christians kind of discipled into, which is, you know, you go to youth group, then you go to uh, the college and you find your college ministry. And now crew and all these other parachurch organizations are trying to start ministries post-college. And so when you get, when you're a church planner, I'm in a, we're in a college town, a liberal college town, and you have college students, they're always looking for other college students, which is fine. I mean, natural to, uh, to, to gravitate towards people in your stage of life. But um, it's been hard because on the one hand, you want to like, you want those people to be able to stay at your church and connect and worship God with other people. But on the other hand, you know, if you don't have a young adults ministry or you don't have this ministry available, they're not going to feel like they have a place. And so we've discipled people into an ecclesial evaluation where if, if I don't have somebody that looks like me, then either, uh, worst case, the church is, something's wrong with this church, 
you know, best case, I just don't belong there. And there's no one there that I can relate to. And it just makes me really, we honestly, the biggest struggle for us in Boulder is uh, how Boulder, the average age is 23, I think, because of the college. So a third of our town is really young. And so we get, uh, when we get gray hair people that come to the well, to our church, they go, where are all the old people? And we're like, you live in Boulder. I don't know if you know that. And I don't know if you know this, but like in Boulder, the older generation that's already planted roots here, they're not very Christian. So they're typically not going to be found in a church. And, but if you want to stay, we'd love to have you. And look, there's two other ones over there. Y'all can, if y'all want to strike up a conversation about your uh, retirement, you know, do that. But it's just, it becomes a really, as a church planner, you're just, it's really challenging because you do have a passion to reach people. But I think what, for a lot of church planners, they get wrapped up into what you're talking about with Fuller, with a pragmatic attitude to the, the church and the model of church. It only exists for what it can accomplish. And the most important thing it can accomplish is saving souls. And therefore, the whole design of the church becomes a sales game of we've got to orient the whole thing to saving souls. That's not to do away with biblical things about making your worship make sense, doing it in the native tongue of the people, as is appropriate sometimes. And so it's not to dismiss any of that kind of healthy kind of thinking like a missionary, but it is to call into question the whole paradigm we've been shaped. I mean, you said the 70s. We've been shaped for a long time with this kind of corporate mindset towards uh, both ecclesial governance, but also just kind of the way people evaluate churches. Oh, yeah, and it goes a lot further back. Um, I think probably the the crucible or the, the, the most significant period was the 19th century. And um, we still kind of living in the, you know, downstream of that. And, and um, I, I, there are a lot of, there are a lot of hopeful things that I see going on. You know, my, my, my criticisms um, have uh, counterpoints in the sense that I see a lot of things going on out there that are, uh, I think, positive and, one of those things is there are just more and more people looking, you know, back into the history of the church, uh, not just to the Reformation, but even further back, looking for something rich and something that um, uh, can call the larger framework that we find ourselves in as a culture, uh, in this anti-culture we find ourselves in, into question. So, I mean, and there are lots of things that... Uh, I think are indicative of that. When you think about, you know, this might sound off topic, but if you think about the popularity of J.R.R. Tolkien, what is it about this guy? Mm. Um, I mean, uh, there's nothing in his body of work that you would say is relevant. You know, he's not talking about uh, social justice. He's not talking about the equality of women. He's not talking. <laughs> he's not talking about any of that stuff. You know, right? He, in fact, what you have is a is a world that's medieval in many respects, mm. and yet people are drawn to it because there are things that they see in it that they they that they feel are lacking in their lives, and uh, it's of course a great you know you know set of tales, uh, but uh, there are lots of other uh, authors who told good stories, but has, have not seen this sort of cultural um, sort of uh, influence that we see with Tolkien. And I think 
you know, concurrent with that, we see more people interested in liturgy. They, they want liturgy that's more challenging and, and rich. Um, we see a lot of people who are, when they think about community, they're actually not thinking about just people like me. Right. <laughs> you know, at my stage of life, they really do want to connect to older people and younger people and so forth. Some of the worst people, of course, are baby boomers my age and, uh, and older when it comes to this <laughs> stuff because they still – they're still enamored with all of these things. <laughs> Their idea yes. of like great music is sounds like seventies rock, you know? <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> so, um, for me, I, I don't listen to, to CCM. If I want my rock, I'll get the real thing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, uh, so I see a lot of, uh, things to be encouraged by and with, with people your age, um, yeah. I see a lot of really great stuff. So when we think about, kind of wrapping up the contextualization topic. So when we think about engaging a culture, going into a place, reaching a people, what, what we're suggesting, what you're suggesting here is that for us to adopt the model of contextualization that's been kind of rampant in an anti-culture, that church is accommodating or becoming a culture of death itself. That that's exactly it's, right. It's not planting roots. It's not doing it. It's not even uprooting weeds. It's simply taking what the culture gives it and mirroring it back. Would that be fair to say? Oh, yeah. And with, with, with a Jesus t-shirt. <laughs> so, you know, the guy who first turned me on to this is a black guy. His name is uh, Ray Hammond, a brilliant man. Went to Harvard when I think he was 16 years old. Hmm. Had, had his MD, his medical doctor, by his mid-20s. Uh, then went back to, to school and got his MDiv and planted a church in Boston and um, still had his medical practice. So it wasn't like he left one to do the other. Uh, he, he just thought, you know, he, the way he described it to me is I'm called to be a healer, both mm -hmm. of body and soul, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I, w I remember uh, talking to him about sort of black sort of urban culture. And I, I got into this very conversation with him about contextualization and he was the yeah. one who said why should i contextualize to death wow. in other words he saw death in the water of mm. black culture and mm. he doesn't going he wasn't going to try to uh incorporate that into the faith he was going to apply the faith to that and sure. instead build a kind of uh genuine culture amid the the anti-culture of death that he found himself in wow that's really interesting yeah, I think the, uh, the we could we could go off on that because uh, planting in an urban context, I I obviously do not know about that being in White Boulder, Colorado, um, but I have a lot of friends who are planting in those contexts, and some listeners of the show they're planting in that those kind of contexts, and um, that's definitely a challenge. It's it has so many challenges. Well, it's so a, many they challenges. do. There are challenges, but they're just they're just different challenges. But you're also in a culture of death, and so am I. We're right. all in a culture of death, uh, right. even if we're, you know, in a really nice sort of uh, pleasant, you know, Norman Rockwell environment. We're in, <laughs> we're in a culture of death. I mean, there are just so many things uh, that are killing us all around us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, there are particular challenges. I, so I've always had and I, I don't want to go on and on because I know you have some things to do, but uh, I've always thought of myself as being really comfortable with down and outers and up and outers. And okay. there's not a whole lot of difference in a certain sense. An up and outer is a highly educated, uh, you know, sort of a person who's part of, say, the elite 
who is just destroying his life or her life with mm. drugs and you know just you know hard living multiple marriages that kind of thing and then you've got a down and otter who's doing the same kind of thing but with no money sure. <laughs> that, and, that, and that's the difference on the on yeah. the one hand the up and otter I had a friend named Roger Dewey years ago who told me that well he had been a he founded an organization called Christians for Urban Justice. This was like, like you know the proto you know Jesus people hippie thing, like yeah. in Boston back in the late sixties seventies eighties that kind of. So he uh, he was doing that and then he got out of that and became a, a chaplain at a really upscale prep school, uh, like you only have in New England. And I, I, I talked to him one time. I said, Roger, how'd you make that transition? He said, it's not a big transition. Same problems. Dad's never around. Dad's on drugs. <laughs> Lots of sex <laughs> outside of marriage. Just, yeah. the, the only difference is the money. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's so true. That's crazy to think about it that way. When uh, Kind of last thing I wanted to kind of touch on is the big idea you recently had this engage, negative world conference yeah. with Aaron Wren, James Wood. I was hoping to be there, but I had already overcommitted myself. What was kind of the the big takeaway either for you or what was your talk about there? What, what was kind of the hope there? Well, I didn't actually present. I was just the host. Uh, okay. But those guys did a great job. We had Joe Rigney, too. And okay. uh, all those talks are going to be available soon on our church uh, YouTube channel. We're just oh, gonna, getting it started. But it'll probably, the first talk will probably be available next week, and it'll be Aaron's uh, three uh, worlds of evangelicalism talk. But uh, mainly, uh, what what we're you know all kind of agreed about with that conference is that Aaron has done a pretty good job of helping us see that we're in an environment at the moment where uh, being a Christian is a net negative to your social sort of standing, um, and if uh, we're going to be able to remain faithful in the midst of this particular period of time. We got to more or less own that, not mm. pretend that's not the case. And if we own that, what does it mean in terms of our approach uh, to ministry? And uh, it's it's a it's not our conviction is that it's not uh, business as usual with the Winsome model. The Winsome model makes some assumptions about the nature of the world that we're addressing. That are no right. longer true. Right. So if people are overtly hostile, um, just own it. <laughs> you know, take your lumps <laughs> and just press forward, and not and not and not uh, you know sort of uh, subject yourself to the illusion that oh, if I had just put it a little bit differently, hmm. maybe they would have been more positive in their regard for what I have to say. No, sure. no, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you put it. If they right. get it, they'll reject it. Or right. if they'll get it and, and receive it, it's because of the work of God's spirit in their lives. And because they're at a place where they're sick and tired of the world's lies. That's the thing mm. we have to keep in mind. There are a lot of people out there who are sick and tired of the world's lies. Those are the people we should be shooting for. Mm, that's a good word. Yeah, I think we've been thinking about that in Boulders. You know, there's a lot of people out there who have become very disillusioned with kind of the liberal mindset in our city. They saw what the government did with lockdowns and all this kind of stuff. And so they were, they're very, it's like the, the fruit on the tree that's just right there, you know. And if we will just kind of open ourselves up to the possibility that maybe God loves them too, and, <laughs> and not just the, right. the hardened atheists you want to reach on campus. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, why, know, why, why, why do we spend all our time chasing those guys? <laughs> 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 so, yeah, and I think, too, uh, the, you know, there are groups of people. So who are the true lepers today? Well, the true lepers aren't gay. The true right. lepers are not trans. They're celebrated by everybody. Right. You know? So what, how do we come across when we chase after those people? Me too, me too. Uh, you know, we've got our own right. version of me too. Uh, right. You know, the, the, the people who are the lepers are the guys uh, in the, you know, the manosphere, the incels. Those, those are lepers. Hmm. Um, and I think they're tremendously open right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a fruitful time for evangelizing young men. Yeah, I agree. Huge opportunity. Well, Chris, this was a great conversation. Hopefully for my listeners, this kind of illuminates uh, maybe some challenges. I know for me and on my ministry, it's helped me kind of rethink. And for my, hopefully this people from my church will listen to this. I'm sure it'll help kind of put some, uh, some paint on the easel of like, something's changed at the well and I can't describe it. This would be what's happening behind the scenes as your pastors kind of think through, hey, how can we mature as leaders, as pastors, as thinkers to be more biblical in a world that's changing? Um, not to abandon biblical principles of uh, virtue and being Christ-like and kind, but just remembering some some old ways of doing Christian ministry uh, and becoming more like Knox in some ways. So, uh, oh, Chris, yeah. thank you so well, much. He, yeah, just let me yeah. leave you with one, one one suggestion. Have you ever heard yeah, the song, ahead. the old the old country music song, uh, "The Reverend Mister Black"? No, I've never heard it. Oh yeah, you, you look it up. Look it up. Yeah, yeah. He rode easy in the saddle. He was tall and lean. <laughs> That's how it starts. <laughs> Sounds and great. And you would have thought nothing, yeah, nothing but a streak of mean could make a man look so downright strong. But when look in his eye and you knowed you was wrong, <laughs> the Reverend Mr. Black. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we need I'll more of those guys. Up. We need more of those yeah. guys. I agree. I agree. Hey, where can I send people? You had a book on... Uh, I think it was Tom Babaldi. Is that the character that, that you wrote about? Yeah, Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. Bombadil. Sorry, yeah. my bad. Um, where can people find that? Well, you know, every every book in the world's on Amazon. You can find it there. There you go. If you're not into yeah. Amazon, you can order it at your local bookstore. You can get it that way. Sure. That's great. And is there a website, uh, a church, or if people wanted to hear more of what you have to say, where could they find you? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, one is uh, my website, crwiley.com. I don't put stuff there much. I mean, it's just like a, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like what we have today is like, that's your, that's, that's like a, a card, you know, a business card. Everybody sure. has to have a website. <laughs> right. So that's my, that's where you can learn about some stuff I've written and said. And then I'm a, a co-host on a podcast called the Theology Podcast. Oh, that's great. Okay. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I'll drop links to those in the show notes. And if you are a listener and you love this uh, interview as much as I did, you should give it a five-star review, subscribe. Uh, you can also sign up for the Patreon. I've got great content coming out. Um, you will get exclusive access to kind of my my approach to the Matt Chandler situation with the village, another situation in Australia where a CEO got fired for being associated with an Acts 29 church. And so all of that is behind a paywall. You've got to sign up with a Patreon. You can also help shape the content I deliver to the public. You can give me tips, and we can have conversations back there on more of that. So I've got some great interviews coming up. I've got Andrew Eisker, who wrote on Christian nationalism. I've got Delano Squars coming up, and so you can look forward to that, and we'll see you next time. 